1: You will recall that at the end of chapter 22, Claudius Lysias calls for a council of the Jews so as to determine the precise nature of their concerns with the apostle Paul. We pick up the story now in verse one. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now we should probably just pause here and notice that Paul was certainly not claiming here to be sinless. He was simply saying that he has acted in obedience with the heavenly vision that he received. He's, he's doing what God told him to do. The statement is parallel to what Paul says in a subsequent trial in Acts 26, 19. There, Luke records Paul as saying, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. However, Paul's claim to have heard from God and to have been doing what God said does not sit well in our story with the high priest. Verse two says this, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, what are we to make of this very unusual exchange? We should point out that Ananias is not the same high priest as the one mentioned back in Acts 4, verse 6. That was Annas. This is Ananias. Ananias had been appointed high priest in AD 47 and then was dismissed in AD He was then later assassinated in AD for being too cozy with the Romans. Josephus, the famous Jewish Roman historian, tells us that Ananias was an insolent and hot-tempered man. So it isn't hard to imagine him ordering the Apostle Paul to be struck on the face for saying something that he considered to be blasphemous. It was, however highly out of order. Leviticus 19, verse 15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So Jewish law, just like Roman law, demanded that judges act in an impartial manner and follow carefully the dictates of the law. There was supposed to be care and and deliberation careful thought, rather than simply punishing people without due process. Interesting to note, of course, that the Romans follow their laws far more consistently than the Jews follow theirs in both the trial of Jesus and then here again in the trial of the Apostle Paul. Thus, Paul charges this judge with hypocrisy. That's what the term whitewashed wall means. It comes from Ezekiel 13. Now, interestingly, Jesus said something very similar to a similar group of people. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like white-washed tombs. So I share that only to say that I think we should be cautious here in saying that Paul sinned by saying what he said. Now, certainly, apostles could sin. Just because they have unique authority doesn't mean that they are sinless. But I'm just not sure that that is what Luke means for us to see. This is what prophets do in the Bible. They rebuke unjust and hypocritical leaders. Jeremiah does it. Ezekiel does it in the Old Testament. Jesus does it. And here we see Paul doing it. So then, what do do we make of Paul's statement in verse 5, where he seems to be walking back his comments? He says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. There are three commonly given explanations for this. The first one is that Paul had bad eyesight and he didn't see that it was the high priest who had ordered the soldier to strike him. So if he had seen, maybe he would have chosen his words differently. That is possible. Paul talks about signing his letters in big clumsy characters. Presumably as an older man, he had very bad eyesight. As some church legends seem to suggest, as as plausible as that is, it is not the majority view of scholars. Some take a bit of a parallel track. They suggest that Paul simply didn't recognize who was presiding because this wasn't actually a formal trial. It was a, it was a pre-trial called by Claudius Lysias, and, and so quite possible that the high priest would not have been wearing the official robes of his office and, and would therefore have appeared to Paul just like any other man gathered to hear the case. That's also possible. The third suggestion is that Paul is speaking ironically here, as if to say, I did not think that a high priest would conduct himself in such a manner. My mistake. Now, I I think we should just note that good conservative Bible-believing scholars differ here. So whatever you think, we should all probably hold our opinions lightly. Story goes on in verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that One part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the councils, Brother, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. I like how David Peterson explains this approach by the Apostle Paul. He says, Definition of the main question was actually an expected part of the statement of facts in a forensic defense speech in ancient rhetoric. Paul seeks to change the focus of his trial from the charges listed in chapter 21 verse 28 to the more fundamental theological issue at stake. This enables him to persuade Roman officials of the religious nature of the antagonists against him. It also enables him to challenge Jews about the true hope of Israel and its fulfillment through Jesus. He is being presented to Christian readers as a resourceful witness from whom other missionaries can learn close quote. I think that's right. I think we're supposed to be innocent as doves, but also wise as serpents. And I think Paul is doing that. He's shifting the argument so as to divide his opponents and also so as to provide greater opportunity to speak to the central concerns of the gospel. Paul didn't want to spend all of his time debating his own personal piety. He wanted to proclaim the lordship of the resurrected Christ. This subtle shift in emphasis allowed him to kill two birds with one stone. And it worked, at least to some extent. Verse seven. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Claudius Lysias had hoped to use the Jewish Sanhedrin to get to the bottom of their concern with the Apostle Paul. But now, in seeing their own division over the matter, he is no closer to ascertaining an actual legal charge. He doesn't want to start a riot by appearing indifferent to their concerns. But neither is he willing to hand over a Roman citizen to the whims and fancy of a hostile mob. And so, the matter appears to have reached a stalemate. In the meantime, the Apostle Paul is kept in prison. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This must have been very encouraging for Paul. But also, I imagine he received it as a bit of a redirection. Jesus makes clear to Paul that the goal here in this legal process is not Paul's own vindication. The goal is to make use of this opportunity to witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord does not promise Paul a not guilty verdict. He promises him further opportunities to preach the gospel. I imagine that Paul had to pray some version of the, not my will, but thine be done prayer that night from inside the prison walls. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And told Paul. Now, this is a bit of an interesting detail. Not not so much the hasty vow of some zealot Jews, that actually is not surprising, but this part about Paul's sister and his nephew. That comes kind of out of left field. Who are these people and where have they been for the last 22 chapters? Of course, we don't really know much about Paul's family. We know that he says that he's been rich and he's been poor and he's learned to be content in every circumstance. It would seem likely that Paul was rich as a child growing up and attending, as we've said, Hebrew Harvard in the city of Jerusalem. I'm sure that wasn't cheap. It it, it then seems that he was poor when he was conducting his mission trips. Finances were often an issue and he had to work with his own hands to support himself. From that detail, some scholars suggest that Paul was cut off from his family resources when he converted to Christianity. But then here, near the end of his life, he he does appear to be more well-off. He was able, without any difficulty, to pay for three men to complete a Nazarite vow, which suggests to some that Paul had been reconciled, at least somewhat, to his family and had access again to the family resources. Enter this sister and her son. Now, we will never know as much about these things as we would like. Luke is not writing a biography of the Apostle Paul. He is writing the story of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and all the world. And right now, he's telling us how it got there, how it got to Rome, at least in part, through the imprisonment and trial of the Apostle Paul. So so the focus here is on how this trial ended up getting bumped out of Jerusalem, up to Caesarea, and then ultimately on to Rome. And that story continues in verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now, Claudius Lysias' account is not entirely accurate. He presents himself in a very favorable light, claiming to have rescued a Roman citizen from an angry mob which isn't exactly how it went down. He also fails to mention that he had Paul tied up and about to be flogged before actually discovering that he was a citizen. But those details aside, Lysias does what any wise mid-level governmental official would do in this situation. He bumps the problem up the company chain. He has decided that this issue is above his pay grade and he washes his hands of the matter, figuratively speaking. He sends Paul north, to the governor of the region, one Tiberius Claudius Felix, a freed slave actually, who rose very high through the Roman ranks. He became governor in AD 52, but was so violent and ham fisted that he was eventually recalled to Rome. It's interesting to note the charge that Lysias records in the letter. Obviously, the conversation has shifted a little bit, at least in his mind. Originally, the charge was that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple, but now there's no mention of that. Lysias simply says that Paul finds himself at the center of a theological controversy related to complex matters of Jewish law. Thus, he frames the dispute as essentially theological, as it seems that Paul had hoped. Luke continues the story in verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrived. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, Herod's Praetorium was a beautiful palace, actually, right by the sea. I've been there, and as far as prisons go, you couldn't really ask for anything better. As an unconvicted Roman citizen, Paul would have enjoyed certain freedoms at this point and certain protections that he would not have enjoyed on the road. He probably would not have chosen this imprisonment, but it certainly proved to be fruitful in the long run. God knows best. The Lord is high in the heavens. He sees the whole board, and he plays a long game.
0: Thanks be to God.